1: markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield.
2: Traders, investors, welcome. This is episode 201. I'd like to introduce you to my guest, Hayden Beamish. For the past five years now, Hayden's been a portfolio manager and director at Endeavor Asset Management a hedge fund based in Melbourne, Australia, with AUM in the ballpark of $300 million. The hedge portfolio that Hayden manages ended the 2020 financial year up 28% after fees, in comparison to the Australian All Ordinaries benchmark, which ended the year down 7%. So the main objective of speaking with Hayden was mostly to gain insight to his institutional investment process. This includes talk of researching companies and prerequisites for investing, the role of analysts and brokers in providing information and flow, plus many details. And something Hayden speaks about in the later half, which I found particularly interesting, are the various types of execution algorithms he'll use for buying and selling large volumes of stock. So if you're an intraday trader and much of what you do relies on tape reading, while you may not be trying to get set in multi-million dollar positions, this part should also be of interest to you. Now, I know this is quite a long episode. I did actually consider breaking it up into two parts, but then I figured I'll jot some timestamps and topics in the show notes, and you can just listen to it in multiple parts if needed. Last of all, for the purpose of context, this interview was recorded early June 2020, and as per usual, none of the stocks mentioned are recommendations to buy or sell. You are entirely responsible for your own trading decisions. And that is all folks, here is Hayden Beamish for episode 201.
3: Because we're an investor in Kogan, and that's normally the first point of call. But um okay, yeah, t- time didn't permit, <laughs> but they've normally got everything.
2: <laughs> Kogan's been on a, a nice run lately, hasn't it?
3: It's been on a tear, yeah. You must be yeah,
2: rubbing um, your hands over there.
3: Yeah, the valuation's definitely getting up there now. So we've we've been trimming since about eight eight dollars, but. Um, yeah, we know, I know David Schaefer, the CFO, um, well, we speak to him, him a bit. That was one of the ones we bought in the coronavirus pullback. So it's just, um, it's just when the, you know, companies like this have such a run, it's, um, it's unbelievable. Sometimes you think it's expensive and it can just keep, keep going.
2: It's literally gone up in a straight line.
3: Straight line. I don't think I've ever seen uh, a V shape turn into, you know, turn into the tick like that. It's just gone straight up.
2: Yeah. So when were you when did you start getting into that?
3: So we were we were there at the IPO, around a dollar eighty, and then the IPO was a poor IPO. It sold off and we actually sold our shares and then they upgraded four times within twelve months. We started we started buying more. And rode it all the all the way to the top. It's actually one of the better ones we've traded. I've got I've got plenty of stories that didn't go this well, but we did sell around the top um, when Ruslan started selling. So he was a CEO. This was at ten dollars back in 2018, and and they're talking up these new verticals like the MBM vertical and doing these great road shows. And then he started selling shares. And we thought it was good enough for him. It was it was good enough for us, and was trading on about 40 times at that stage. And then. Late 2018, we bought, bought back in again when it came down to f- 15 times, and this is when Koga Mobile was doing really well, and it was it was all about the verticals, not so much the um online brand that you know that we all know, and we've held that core position really until um, the coronavirus pullback. Yeah, we we started chipping away, and and now you know they're just printing money. They've spent a lot on marketing and they are acquiring these customers that would have never used the site before and i think if you haven't gone to the website you've got a pretty you think it's a pretty poor brand until you until you buy a few of their products and they've got this marketplace where you can buy other brands now and you know it's ran, ran all the way back up to $11 and you know unfortunately we don't have enough of them
2: <laughs> yeah it, it's interesting because i actually don't know anyone who shops on kogan or i've never like none of my mates have ever told me they have bought something from kogan but I don't know. Seems to be doing all right. Well, the share prices, anyway.
3: That is funny. So they've so they've only got so online retail is nine percent of the total retail sales in Australia, and they've only got two percent of online retail. So, you know, the very you know, it's a big market gap for the for what it is. But in the scheme of things, there's still still a lot to go if they keep on delivering.
2: Hmm. Mm. Well, okay, okay. That's
3: my that's my conflicted view. <laughs>
2: <laughs> of course. I, I guess probably a, a starting point um, just to kick things off would be to talk about what you were doing uh, prior to being a fund manager at Endeavor, which is obviously where you are now. So, tell me a little bit about what you were doing leading up to this.
3: I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, which you know, for those who don't know is the most isolated city in the world, and it's a city, or well, it's a state, actually that's abundant in resources. And from a, from a young age, I've always liked maths, odds, and I've been fascinated by businesses. And um, we've had this we've had this market rally from you know 2010 uh, really onwards, post GFC. that has been sort of tech and disruptors and high quality growth companies, but but the cycle before um, from o2 to say oh6 which ended in euphoria, it was, it was very much commodities and property and the rise of China and and WA was abundant in resources, still is today and to wrap some sort of context around it for the listeners, I'm sure many are, are aware, but so copper in from 2002 to 2006 went up 600%, iron ore went up 600%, oil 400 gold, even the risk off if you were bearish and you went in gold, you made 300% in this period and, and it felt like Perth was the center of the bull market. I'm sure it wasn't, but you know, everyone was talking stocks and resource companies. And I remember my first investment, this isn't a unique story and in, in Perth, but it was a friend who worked at a coal company CDS and that went from 40 cents to $4 and I put in $5,000 and you know, I went, went 50 and it was a lot of money for me. and. And I wrote it all the way back to 40 cents in the GFC, and sort of heard of um, you heard of everyone making making money, and there was a real willingness to take risk at that time, and it created a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in Perth, which which I think is still alive today. And Buffett certainly wouldn't have approved because you you were conditioned to invest, I think, outside of your circle of competence, and what I mean by that is. Not many people really have geology degrees. You don't know the specifics of a mine or the grade or the capex and the return on capital. But as opposed to it, you know this market rally we're in at the moment, like Apple, Zoom, Microsoft. At least you know the product or you can understand the price and competitors. And but sort of back in that 02 to 06 six period, investors were conditioned to take risk, and a lot of that time the risk was rewarded. And uh, wealth was made and destroyed, including including my own family. But my dad was a property developer. He he made a lot and 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 gave it pretty much all back in the GFC. And I think I think a lot of that um, experience growing up in Perth is just maybe more risk averse. And and that's why part of the reason why I run a hedge uh, portfolio today, which we can talk about later if you want. But I think it, there's a few aspects that attracted me to to investing early on and another is the the qualitative side. There's a big human element in my investment process today today. I like to get to know management of sort of these founder led businesses we invest in. And and I find the psychology of the market fascinating. You have to learn when to trust people, when not to understand management's motives and brokers' motives, which are obviously conflicted a lot of the time. And and you have to think about thematics and what's changing in the world if it's Technology or politics, ESG, um, health is a good recent example. And and you have to ac- assess whether all of this is in the price and that is depending on the future outlook of the business and I guess the qualitative, quality of the business. So it's a bit of that like, qualitative side as well, which isn't black and white. And I think to outperform, you have to do all of that quicker than the rest of the market. So you're constantly tested. And it's the same as you know trading for five minutes or investing for five years, fifty years. Yeah, it's it's the same that the scorecards are there live every every day for everyone to see. And you know, if I put a stock up at the investment committee that I think we should invest in, and and it goes down twenty percent, there's nowhere to hide. And so you're sort of constantly learning, which can be tough, but you're you're forced to forced to improve, which is great for sort of personal development and and makes you a better better investor over over time yeah but in terms of my like career progression and before endeavor i I have a finance and economics degree and um, between studying and sort of playing poker and barding and wakeboarding i was trading futures and and it was sort of mostly unsuccessfully early on but i was really drawn in by price action and chart patterns and you know the supply and demand behind these patterns that kept on repeating repeating over time and and just on my uni I, I had a lot of fun but you know for the young people listening focusing on on the fun stuff definitely made my pathway a bit harder so you know, I wouldn't wouldn't follow my lead there you have to have to do the hard work eventually to get to where, where you want to otherwise you know you'll eventually have to catch up and work harder later or you might regret it I guess yeah during during uni I worked at Patterson's as a dealer's assistant was was my first real job, and this this was when the GFC hit. So around the GFC sort of came in later in Australia because commodities held the market up. So I think you had the subprime crisis was kicking in around 06, 07, and Australia lagged the US by by a few years, and that was about the time I was working as a dealer's assistant. And I I hated that job. It was admin for brokers and times were tough and it was really good to see inside a broking firm but you know the the economy was in a tough time and it was it was half of the brokers so it was a bit of a grim atmosphere in the office and and a job popped up in a insolvency firm called ppb advisory and that was just restructuring and and turnaround management of these businesses that were most of the time had taken on too too much debt and um i learned a lot about over leveraging and and not to be fooled by by the optics, like so there were managing directors of these companies would come in, and that'd always been the new least, well, not always, but a lot of the time, like the new least BMW or a you know, nice new car, and and they were the first things to go. and And there was a bit of a culture of overspending. It wasn't just the car; it was just that culture in these businesses that that went under. and And I think I really saw the fragility of success in at PPB and. And this was until, say, I was there until about 2013, 14. So I was sort of coming through the GFC by then. And and I got a call from the head of research at Euros Securities. And Euros is a publicly listed in Australia stockbroking firm. And, and the offer was to eventually got an offer to join the research division, which for me was a dream. It was to get paid to, to analyze stocks. So... I was 25 at the time, and the job was to build financial models for analysts and join company meetings. and And it was really inspiring, actually, to to join Euros and just be surrounded by these people who are all really successful. And you know, this is one of the uh, bigger broking firms in in WA, and they were the first point of call for a lot of companies to come to come public. So they were able to invest early on, and you know, there were some great success stories and in that firm, and and it was sort of a year of building models for the research guys. Where I was recruited internally to join their listed investment company, which is owned by Euros. It's called Westoz, and had about two hundred and fifty million dollars under management. And and that was suddenly a whole new world again. Like this was now on the buy side, managing clients' money and sort of working with some highly intelligent people. And and the man I was to invest in. WA businesses only, which while I was learning a lot and really enjoying it, but this was when resources were now in decline and, and it, it felt like resources were last cycle and I was frustrated we couldn't adapt to the market conditions and we're sort of in the early stage of this, this bull market we're in still to this day. It was um, you know, technology driven really and there were these great opportunities happening in East Coast Australia and for those uh, international listeners that east coast of australia is pretty much like a real real estate construction services oriented economy but there was an analyst from the research desk at euros who who was a great investor and he joined endeavor and called me soon after and said look at jobs popped up here uh would you like to come over and have an interview and and endeavor is where i've been for the last last five years i'm a director and portfolio manager manager here, very, very happy. We've got 300 million roughly assets under management and a, and a good track record. And and one of the things that really attracted me to Endeavor was, yeah, that ability to invest anywhere, mainly the ASX, but now globally with uh, my hedge portfolio I'm running. And I think I'd, I'd sort of push for this portfolio um, for a few years because I think managing money really has to reflect your personality and that's something you hear time and time again from you know, I've read The Market Wizards and that was sort of repeated often and and whether you're investing for a long or short time frame but like personally my my floor I guess in investing is I'm inclined to act quickly so I can take profits really quickly and I can also cut I cut losses quickly so it helps with the risk mitigation but if I'm concerned about the macro, I'll, I'll be inclined to take profits, and so we've set up this hedge portfolio where I can protect clients' money and can hedge hedge the portfolio quickly. You can, if you're worried for any reason, you can go from 100% long equities to to zero percent net exposure with with the click of a mouse. So, yeah, that portfolio's been running over 12 months now, and um, yeah, I'm the portfolio manager there, and it's it's doing pretty well. So, clients are happy, which is great.
2: This hedge portfolio, is that the only uh, fund which you manage or do you manage multiple funds there?
3: Yeah, we have multiple. So I'm the manager of we have a growth balance high conviction uh, portfolio and the high conviction is a smaller one. It's got about 50 mil under management and that can go – uh, that has no restrictions it's anywhere on the ASX and then we have growth which is 85% top 200 and balance which is 75% top 200 and and so we have multiple two portfolio managers and one CIO on those three portfolio managers and then the hedge portfolio um, I'm the sole PM of that portfolio
2: okay so you are involved in all of these
3: yeah that's right yeah
2: gotcha Speak to me a little bit about the objective of the fund. I know you briefly touched on it there, but just if we could go into it a little further, what is the objective of, I mean, you can describe any one of these funds or all of them if you like, but obviously each hedge fund has different objectives. Um, You know, the funds come in all shapes and sizes. Some are just there to try and outperform the index by a couple percent. Some are trying to produce... uh, smoother returns some are trying to produce uncorrelated returns what is it that you're actually trying to do at endeavor
3: it's a good question you know growth balance and high or really for all, all the funds we're just trying to maximize performance the main three portfolios that have been around for sort of 10, 10 years now they're they're long only they're benchmarked against the market so People act how they're incentivized and we're incentivized to beat the market. So that's that's what we're trying to do every day. So we uh, will take into account say, Australia has a high weighting in financials and our positioning verse versus the benchmark and and our job is to outperform. So for our clients, they have allocated to us just their Australian equities exposure. We won't tend to manage all of people's wealth. It's just we're doing our our job there and that's that's to beat, beat the market so if you think about we've got a fairly high conviction portfolios between 30 stocks and, and the hedge portfolio is is 20 stocks and there's a big overlap in in the companies that we're investing in and we're just trying to find high quality businesses that we can hold for three to five years and we're very much people-orientated Investors, so we like to get close to management. We like to invest in founder led businesses where they're aligned to the same outcomes that we are. And we look for a few different attributes. We'll look for high return on invested capital. We'll look for high margins. Say we run a screen every day that a live screen that pulls in all consensus forward looking metrics. And I think, you know, in this day and age with rates where they are, if you have a margin over 10, 15%, somebody's coming for you and they're probably well-funded as well and we like to screen for high margin businesses that are increasing their margin over time and the return on invested capital really is one of the main ones for us and then we'll look at you know do our own dcfs valuations and and look at the multiples and and the end goal is really just to to hold this portfolio of um great great businesses where we don't have to worry about the share prices every day where we're happy if you know, if the share price is going down, it might be a reason reason to buy more because their businesses that can can weather whatever storm they're in, and and they're preferably growing into large addressable markets. So a lot of our holdings are offshore, um, or they have operations offshore, mainly mainly US, and and they're not tied to the economic cycle.
2: Okay, so we're, here we're getting into your investment process, and I'd really like to spend a bit of time on this and sort of get. Uh, a little bit technical if possible, um, or as technical as you uh, would like to be, where do you begin? Like, how do you even begin to identify an opportunity? Like, where do you start? And if you like, I mean, you can even refer to a a recent example if that helps.
3: There's a few, plenty of examples that have gone right or wrong, happy happy to talk about either, but I think it changes all the time because – the market's changing all the time, but we're obviously watching the market. That's that's an easy one. But we have a we have a screen, like I mentioned, and that we might have a screen where we've got certain metrics we look for, and I'll rank all the metrics. Say it's margin, um, forward EPS growth, uh, insider ownership, uh, return on invested capital, a few others, and we can rank the whole market from say one to three thousand in australia and that's updating live and that's just a a a rank screen that's trying to put our process in into numbers which which is really quite hard to do and it's not a it's not an exact science but that that does turn up ideas and you know the quant side is never enough to to invest obviously we'll um we'll look for these businesses that'll pop up on the screen or say through contacts or clients actually are a good good source of information for us we have about 150 sophisticated investors and some of those are directors of companies that we've invested in that have liked how we've done things and then given us some of their money to manage maybe when they're retiring and 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 i find it's always helpful to speak to people on the street like whether it's whether it's friends or um, family or you know just management of of private companies you always you always learn something and so so we so we find an idea and it's come, you know, there's also brokers and analysts obviously on the sell side as well and 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 it sort of ticks the boxes for us early on. Then the next step is to meet management is the main criteria. We need to meet management. We need some third party verification. So we like to speak to whoever will pick up the phone, say customers. Competitors, ex-staff members, uh, whoever whoever we can really in the industry, just to get a bit of external verification and sort of like I was saying at the start, you never you never know what management's motives or brokers' motives are. There might be a capital raise coming, which is why they're they're promoting the stock because they want to get a high market share so they can tell the company that they're the main broker on the stock, and then they'll they'll get looked after on the capital raise, which is which is sort of where brokers are making their money now. The, the brokerage race declining. It's all about that market share and, and capital raises for companies. But once once we've taken all that into account, we'll we'll meet management. We like to go and visit visit the assets. So a an example. Actually, I'm our office is in Melbourne, uh, Melbourne, Australia. And one of the businesses around the corner from us was Polynovo, which is a Burns. A Burns Business. Aaron, I'm sure you're you're aware of this company, having watched the Australian market, but it, it's been a, been a great performer. We, we saw one of the directors of a company we've owned for a long time, which is MVP, and the MVP owned the Green Whistle. So, if you've seen in in um, say Bondi Rescue which is an Australian TV show or, or sports globally when people get injured a lot of the time they, they inhale a grand whistle it's called and, and pentrox is a drug and it's just used for short term term pain relief and we've been a long term shol- shareholder of MVP and, and we saw one of the directors actually selling his shares in MVP and buying shares in Polynovo which happened to be around the corner from our office and we went and met met the management of, of the county Polynovo and they were telling us about this synthetic matrix that they had that they developed with CSIRO and it treated burns and and it was 50% cheaper than the incumbent Integra which is if you go into a hospital now and you have a third degree burn it's actually treated with pig skin and and a lot of people react uh, unfortunately to the pig skin whereas this is a synthetic version and it turns into lactic acid and Uh, it's absorbed naturally by the body it's got some great great benefits and he went out the back and he showed us the the factory line which was sort of two guys on this very small sort of just looked like a printer but it wasn't but it was printing these sheets of of mesh out that were selling for ten thousand dollars at 90 percent margin and and we were sort of thinking this is this is amazing it was a it was it felt like it was in the price to a certain extent at that time it was a 360 mil market cap business and it was doing about 3 million dollars of revenue but but this is probably another thing worth sort of talking about with our process and i think maybe institutions generally is is it's it's always forward, forward looking like we're not too concerned about what has happened to a share price even though it had gone from say 10 to 15 cents to 60 cents that as long as we could see upside to this valuation, which which we could in the end, because it had a addressable market of 1.2 billion dollars, and and we spoke to a surgeon in the US who had just started using this, and he was um you know, head of the, head of the burns in the US, and he was saying he's replacing all his patients 100% with PolyNovo's product, and we're thinking if we can extrapolate this out to not 100% of the market, which will make some Well, to get you some crazy numbers, just say twenty percent market penetration. There'd still be, still be some great upside in the share price, and and we sort of watched. We invested in in the high conviction portfolio around sixty cents, and and we found out the year, uh, half a year later, there was a Burns, Burns conference in Las Vegas, and my co-portfolio manager, uh, Richard, actually went to this Burns conference. It was for industry participants, so he was sort of not he was you know, pretending he wasn't an investor and he was going around. He actually spoke to some of the integra sales reps who were saying, you know, the first thing we've seen in 20 years that's a threat is Polynovo. And and one of them was thinking about going to Polynovo. And he just got these great these great uh, these great comments from from inside the industry that really helped with our conviction. And and that share price is $2.70 now. It's a $1.7 billion market cap. And and we've been saying for a long time it's expensive but it just keeps on keeps on going up because now they are they're becoming successful in burns and now they're talking about the next market hernia which is an even bigger market and they've got a sling product and they've got a beta cell diabetes solution and it sort of continues so we've been trimming but we're still still comfortable with the upside so that's sort of what gets us Maybe to the last step in the in the process is that selling selling discipline really, which is just all about the valuation, which we're watching and uh, the updating as often as we can.
2: Okay.
1: Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. And split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
2: One of the things, uh, I'm just going to pull apart what you said a little bit there um, with a few different questions. Um, one of the things you highlighted right at the beginning of your answer, and you've also mentioned it, I think earlier on as well, uh, return on invested capital. Can you just explain why why that particular metric is so important to you?
3: Yeah, because the in- return on invested capital, I think, is just a great shortcut for how much, how well the company can compound over the years. So, if the business is earning money and it's retaining that money, so it's making a product. say, PolyNovo, for example, they're making $8,000 per unit they sell and if they are reinvested in that into the business as opposed to paying it out in a dividend and they're reinvesting it and generating a higher return for the company, then that's how you get these great compounding businesses like, I mean, Amazon is is a great example that they have not generated a a profit really from the retail division and AWS is, but they've just poured all this capital back into the business and generated these huge returns for shareholders because management's showing that they have an ability to allocate that capital efficiently. And they're seeing opportunities within their business where they can, they can generate some good outcomes for shareholders. And a lot of the time, you, so that's why we we want management that are aligned to the share price as opposed to taking a salary because it's a you know it might be a top top 50 company in Australia which you know Australia is a small market it's easy to become mature quickly and and grow with economic growth so you know if you have these sort of entrepreneurial um, focused businesses that can generate some huge returns internally and you can hold them for the long term that's where they can really. Uh, compound returns for for yourself as an investor
2: this example you gave of uh, polynovo they have some sort of product which uh, helps burns now i presume that prior to this you didn't really know too much about burns and i presume the same goes for a lot of the companies like you're not an expert in the products or services that these companies uh, are involved in how do you get familiar with with that i mean is it is it purely just from talking to re uh talking to management and doing your due diligence up front or i mean what are the shortcuts that you take to um sort of get across an industry or a specific product or service
3: yeah it's a it's a good question and i think it's part of what i find really exciting about the industry because how you know, the burns is a great example and and you know, we'll come across these investment ideas that are sort of great ideas on on paper, but then you need to dig deeper into the industry and make sure that um, that you're not taking too much risk with your investment and and we're we're generalists, so we're looking at the whole market and and I think because of that we're not um resource or healthcare specialists and we, we tend to lean on externals maybe more more than most. So I think a good thing about um being an institutional investor is you do have that access to information. So there's sell side analysts are a great first step. Um obviously after speaking to to management and understanding the business, but the sell side analysts they might only cover, say, between ten and fifteen stocks and and you have to pay a bit of bit of commission per annum. It's about, I think the minimum cutoff would be between 100 and 150 thousand dollars a year in brokerage for the for the top tier firms just to be able to sort of speak to these analysts and and if we come across a company and and we want to get up to speed really quickly that's what the analysts are great for because they've might have covered the stock for years they know it inside out and you can just you can ask and delve into the areas where you you're lacking in knowledge i don't i don't find them so useful for market timing but they're just great for that company knowledge and and can introduce you to other contacts um, in the industry there's also there's some expert opinion groups that we use occasionally but but rarely Um, primary insight is one example so say polynovo just sticking with that example if we wanted to speak to a surgeon in the us you can you can call these expert opinion groups and they have a panel of people who are working in these industries themselves and not in financial markets and they'll they'll arrange a call with you and you can just try and get another another perspective, which again is, is really helpful. And then and then there's just personal sort of relationships and um, yeah, client client relationships and we just really try and speak to as many people as possible. And, and you can sort of, you can get up to speed very quickly. And sometimes, you know, there'll be a capital raise on for a company and, and it's an industry you haven't looked at before or it's a new new business and the capital raise might be closing on that day or the next day. And you can you can really speed through the process if you have to. And and I think also a lot of the time, you know, we, we do a, a fairly thorough process before investing because we have a small number of stocks we only have between 20 and 30 holdings but there might be some funds with a larger amount of stocks say you have 60 stocks and you're only going to two percent in your fund and you might start investing after a meeting and and continue doing the doing the work as you're as you're building your weighting and you know hopefully your, your if your gut instinct was right in the in the early stage and you find something sort of deeper along the investment process you don't like you can hopefully sell for not not too much of a loss or or hopefully a profit but um yeah this, it's mainly sort of to answer your question it really comes down to the down to the network and just speaking to as many people as as possible and and not being afraid to ask the stupid questions.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I guess that's a big one. Just before we move off this, this particular subject too much, for someone at home who might just be a retail investor, what are some quick numbers that they can run to get, uh, to, to do their own kind of valuation on a company and to determine whether that might be, you know, worthwhile the risk in investing? Like are there certain metrics, I know uh, return on invested capital is one we've already highlighted, but are there certain kind of, you know, metrics, hard and fast numbers which you like to look for?
3: There are that we like to look for and that is in the context of the type of businesses we're after. So I guess if you're a growth quality investor, you would look for, say, I like to screen for a company with – Uh, return on equity above 15%, return on invested capital above 15%, a EBIT margin above 20%, EBIT margin that's growing, say, at least 10% per annum, and these are all not black and white. They're not going to produce results that you can just invest in straight away because all these forecasts do do change over time as well but i think they're just some some great simple simple hurdles um you know the strong strong return on equity is is a good one and a high margin and and they could go you could go deeper and do a do a simple simple valuation because you have sell side analysts who have the time and I you know, cover a small amount of companies. They might have, you know, a 500-line valuation with, you know, it's a three-way valuation with the working capital and the cash flow statement, and and we keep it we keep it very simple. We might just forecast the free free cash flow, and I think this is a great exercise to do. And you can find some you can find some templates online for um, a discount cash flow template, and you can plug in some free cash flow and you can discount it back with with today's discount rate and and it's always a good good exercise to see what is the current share price assuming. So don't put in your assumptions for for the earnings growth because that's you know it is it is it is guessing at the end of the day unless you have some real real knowledge or an information edge. But if you can plug in numbers that equate to the current share price and then you can decide if you think those numbers are too ambitious based on what you know about the company or not then it's, it's a great exercise to run through. It's probably not essential. It's just good to understand the valuations behind the businesses that you, you're investing in.
2: How much do you uh, – I know you said earlier that you have like a five-year horizon. Uh, I guess that's on average when you are looking at a company or you're investing in a company. Obviously, the stock becomes very volatile during earnings or on an earnings announcement. How do you react during that? Like, what if it's the earnings are, you know, the market perceives it to be an underperformance? Like, what do you do in that situation?
3: Yeah, so the, the three to five years is the target and obviously that doesn't always occur and I think – I, we we do all this work, speak to all these people, do all the valuation work. We spend all, all day looking at it, and and we still get it wrong. Yeah, you know, often I, I would guess say a third of the time we're still still getting these investments wrong, and it's all about sort of how much do you make uh, from the winners and how much do you lose lose from the losers, and and things pop up that you can't forecast and say there's an announcement in in. Kogan before market and actually Kogan has a um, they they funnily enough put out announcements it seems to be quite close to the market open so often 20 30 minutes before the market open they'll put out a an announcement with some numbers that don't actually say what the underlying earnings are but they they put the the drivers of the earnings in there and you have to go back to previous halves to work out because they'll give you the growth rate so you have to work out the growth from previous divisions to to figure out if they're on track for their for their numbers or not and i guess if a announcement comes out and a lot of the time so if it's unexpected a lot of, a lot of the time the traders the traders beat beat us to it so a stock will match up or down and it seems to be relatively efficient most of the time in the match price so Kogan, for example, might bring out a new update as tracking ahead of guidance, and the stock will be matching up twenty percent. So if we wanted to buy, we we will do the numbers based on the new price. And you know, if the price is up twenty percent, but we think there's upside, then we we don't really mind what um, how much it's up or down, and we'll we'll be happy to participate on market. And and by that I mean just buy on market at the market price, and that's normally. Um, we use like the volume weighted average price of EWOP um, to accumulate. And, and on the flip side, if there's an announcement that's unexpected, which does happen, then we will try and speak to management, try and understand if it's a one-off or whether it's a real change in, in the business that we need to be concerned about. And, and as, these, as these positions, when they go wrong, they become a, a smaller part of the portfolio, you can really see why stocks become oversold because there might be a a, a manager with sixty stocks and you know, stocks down to half half a percent of the portfolio because it's been a losing investment. They bring out a bring out a negative update and you know this manager might manage a billion dollars, so it's a significant amount really for the for the stock, and they'll be happy just just to exit it at any price. And you know that might be um, for for a number of reasons.
2: That was an interesting point you brought up about announcements being dropped or released so close to the market open. For someone who's a intraday trader, uh, prop trader, retail trader, uh, they can normally react to those sort of announcements pretty quickly. Uh, For someone like you who's managing hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and of course you don't have hundreds of millions of dollars invested in a single company, but uh, you have a large stake in these companies how quickly can you react to that kind of announcement?
3: does depend on the announcement and you know, how much time is required to investigate the issue if it is an issue so sometimes you can just speak to management you can get some clarification other times you might not trust what management is saying so you need to speak to speak to other people in the industry or say it's a stock where you've leaned on an analyst on on the sell side they often take longer because they have to go through their their compliance processes they have to write a note they can't they can't selectively brief you before releasing a note so you might have to wait wait a few days if if you're leaning on that analyst but that that doesn't happen happen too often i i guess if it's most of the time if it's a company we know well then we can we can act pretty we can act quickly like we've got nothing stopping us from from buying immediately on market but but often you still have the share price already matching at up or down by a certain percentage and there's rarely an opportunity to buy or sell on the day at a better price than what you think it, it should be. If that makes sense, it's, it's funny how quickly and maybe it's hedge funds or the, the intraday traders in the market, but a, a share price say that with a positive announcement might already matching up 10%. So we go, okay, we've, we've missed the opportunity. You always need to be in before the news to really experience that gain. And then we'll assess whether it's worth buying at that price or not. And that's why I think you often see you see companies, you know, they'll match up during the day, and they might they might pull back a little bit as you have these short term traders take profit, and then they might just steadily rise as you have an institution buying buying over the day.
2: Mm. Let's get into that. The the execution part something uh, I'm quite interested in. Uh, just to set. The context for this, uh, for these next few questions, you know, in terms of notional value, what would be a large position for your fund to to accumulate?
3: Would probably be around between fifteen and twenty million dollars at at the top end.
2: Okay, and so there are companies currently in your portfolio where you have fifteen to twenty million dollars of holdings.
3: Yeah, yeah, there's a few of them.
2: Okay, so how do you execute? an order like that
3: so with those businesses will rarely go in with that size at the start we'll buy them when they're small and hopefully over time they grow into that size position and that's our top holdings that has been the case sort of they've been companies we've held for maybe five five plus years for the majority of the time but say say if we're trading a we might make a call on a big caps so at top 200 company where we'll exit one and buy another and and that you know for we've got 300 million dollars which which in the scheme of things is actually relatively small in the institutional world so the top so in the top 200 we can get the liquidity to trade out a company for five million dollars and trade another in for five million dollars but it's a small caps which is about half of our assets under management where it just takes time. So we will we often accumulate over time. And there's one at the moment we're just buying every day. We have been for for two weeks because that's an illiquid company. And when we do that, we look at the price every morning and we'll set a limit price that we're happy to buy under. And we'll just we'll just set set the algo with that Limit price and and there's a few different ways you can um, you can you can set an algo like you can just do a limit price and then you can cap your volume. So we might say we're happy to buy stock a stock at a dollar and we're happy to pay uh, we're happy to participate in 100 percent of the volume, but but majority of the time we won't do that. We'll say we'll cap the volume a bit. Lower might be a 10% cap for the volume, and that way we know that we're not impacting the price. So we're not we're not creating an artificial price because you'd hate to push a price up and then um, because you've been doing all of the volume, it, it sells off afterwards, and you could have got it at a lower price. So there's some there's some simple algos There's a limit price. Um, there's a VWAP, and and we put our all our brokers through one broker, and we have a commission sharing arrangement. It's called where um, that commission shared amongst different brokers. But we speak to him, and um, they they are for a lot of large funds in Australia. And and he was telling us that ninety percent of all orders in the Australian market that they see at least a VWAP, so that's just a volume weighted average price over the day. And they they offer a few smaller. Um, algorithms like there's an iceberg where you know if you want to you can set a price and click the iceberg or split it up into lots of little orders so nobody can tell their size volume buying there's also a sniper algo it's called so that's where you can set a price limit and you can choose whether you want it to only take liquidity so that algorithm will never actually show any size on the screen say, say we're buying dollar limit, it'll wait until an ask pops up at a dollar and it'll just snipe, snipe that dollar without without putting anything on the bid and you can actually choose whether you want it to leave liquidity on the ask, say you, you might say I want to take everything at a dollar or I just want to snipe at a dollar and make sure there's a residual balance left over so, so that that seller doesn't get scared. There's also a, a stealth algo, so that's the same as a sniper, but it can show some liquidity, and and that way you might earn the spread, say say a dollar, and you show the liquidity at ninety nine cents, and the seller might come down a few times, so you sort of earn that cent cent gap, and and the stealth algo also tries for the dark ball. so in between the bid and the ask there are the broker dark pools and and nothing's disclosed there but sometimes there's a lot of volume sitting in that dark pool and you can often or not often but you know it's sometimes you can fill your order um in that dark pool because there might be an institution selling that doesn't want to disclose their size either um they're probably there are a few of the main ones there's also there's you can do a chameleon uh, algo so that Algo will change it's algorithm based on certain triggers so you could say you know once we're at 50% we want to move from we want to move from vwap to sniper because we're comfortable we've got a significant amount of the of the order on board and then you can you can put in certain restrictions around that chameleon so i say once you move to the to the sniper want to you want to cap the limit at say 100 basis points of the of the arrival price when the sniper's activated so so it'll only hover around that price when when the algorithm switched on so so they've all got sort of these you know they've all got great Great names, but it all really comes down to the parameters within, and they're, they're highly flexible. And we speak to the the algorithm desk, and they just say a lot of a lot of the flow they're seeing now is coming away from the traditional institutional broking desk towards these electronic desks, where it's algorithms, and and you might have funds with more in house. Uh, traders themselves managing these orders and then you know the traditional broker is actually more used as a facilitator to arrange meetings with companies and and their sell site analysts and arrange conferences and um you know site visits and that type of thing
2: wow that was awesome i have questions about all of those (laughs) (laughs) the first one you spoke about there the uh the limit uh, volume algo. I, I can't remember the exact terminology you used, um, but pretty much you were saying that you might be like ten percent of the volume at a dollar, if that's kind of where you want to buy it. Yep. How does that algo work? Let's say price is trading around a dollar, but then it you know it starts to drift higher. What's your algo going to do then? Is it going to continue? You know, is it going to go from uh, bid at a dollar to now bid at a dollar? 01 or a dollar and a half or how, how does that work
3: so it'll only work within the limit you've given it so in that in that case the percentage of volume algo with a limit will only work under that limit say so dollar example drift dr- would say so drifts higher then the main parameters, the price limit and the percentage of volume only works within that price limit you set but a lot of the time the volume limit will be used with with a VWAP order, so you're working over the day at whatever price the market takes the share price to, but but you might only cap the volume at ten percent so that you know you're not you're not altering that price and pushing it up and having to pay a higher price, but but yeah, they won't. They'll the it's pretty black and white that the algorithm won't. You know, there's, no, there's no AI sort of side to it. So if you set the parameter of the price limit and it will not move outside of that price limit.
2: Okay. And the commission sharing arrangement, I know this wasn't an algorithm. It's just something I noted while you were talking there. Can you just describe how that works?
3: Yeah, sure. So, we give all our orders to one broker. So, the way brokers get paid obviously is commission but they get paid for their services through commission so they're paying for the analysts they're arranging conferences they're arranging overseas trips to visit these companies and and you generally you pay them through giving them an order and a lot of the time it's an order that they in the stock that they would be the house broker on so say you know kogan the the analyst best analyst in the market in my opinion is at at Canaccord so we would give our Kogan order to Canaccord to sort of reward them for that for that um, effort they put in and for the help that they've given us but what's what you're seeing more now is a commission sharing arrangement where one broker will put their hand up and say we'll we'll take all all the orders so they're almost like an in-house trader for you and there's a trust factor there as well and then out of that Commission that you pay them. They would take a certain amount say hypothetically a quarter of the commission and three-quarters of it goes into a commission Pool, so that commission pool is part of the commission sharing arrangement And then if you use the services of another broker because you're not paying them with an order Afterwards for their services you will pay them out of this commission sharing pool. And so our broker who gets all of our orders will send a cheque to to whatever broker we ask him to at the end of the month. So it's just a way of, it doesn't change how anything works, but it's sort of, you can add a bit more science around it. So instead of us just giving orders based on who we, we feel should get the order on the day, we sit down at the end of, end of the month and we look at where do we get value from in the market and who do we need to pay. And then and then our broker will send send them the you know, the money that we we tell them to.
2: And these algos which you're running are they are these algos which you've developed in house, or are these algos which the you know you kind of instruct the broker to run for you to fill your order in a particular way?
3: Yeah, so these are all provided by the broker. So most of the the big brokers will have them say. Those ones I was telling you about were Macquarie and, you know, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, UBS, they all have similar algos. So it's different to your broker relationship. There'll be a there'll be an electronic desk and they'll come and integrate into your systems, whether it's Iris or Bloomberg, and then and then we can direct orders to the algo uh, internally. So our trader will will put the algo order on without having to speak to anyone, but the commission goes goes to the broker.
2: Gotcha. Okay, okay, that's really interesting. I had a question around the VWAP algo. So, what is that exactly doing? Obviously, I know what VWAP is, but when you're running a VWAP algo, like, what's that trying to achieve? Obviously, let's say you're trying to buy a stock, you're trying to accumulate a stock, uh, and you're trying to accumulate it with a VWAP algo. Like, what's what's it doing? How does it determine where's a where's a good price to to buy,
3: yeah. So it's just trying to match the VWAP for the day. So the VWAP's calculated live, but obviously at the end of the day is the 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 VWAP for the day. So ideally, if you put a VWAP algo on, you should get that same price at the end of the day. You should get the VWAP price at the end of the day. So the share price deviates from the VWAP during the day. So if say if the VWAP's a dollar and the share price is actually run ahead to a to a dollar ten, it would um, it would slow down the buying and vice versa, if it's trading below the VWAP it would speed it up uh, automatically and just it would try and match that price. So it'll also save save a bit of the volume for the match where obviously on the ASX a lot of volume's done in the closing match and that's going to be closer to the VWAP. So it'll manage manages orders or manage the volume during the day based on how much is normally traded during the day versus the match as well. And and um, g- generally, it gets, it gets pretty close.
2: Okay, okay. So the further price gets, let's say you're trying to buy a stock, you're trying to get long, uh, the further price gets away from VWAP, above VWAP, the less it's going to buy.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's if you're doing a VWAP algo which is a passive instruction so i I generally i'm not a a fan of mean reversion as a general strategy because i always think if there's if there's some mean reversion someone knows something i don't know and that's why it's reverting from the mean and you sort of have like you have brokers all the time say yeah, we had a good example today that you know csl which is a healthcare company in australia is trading on the biggest gap between the the all ordinaries on a, on a PE multiple that it, that it has in uh, ten years, and that was a reason. That was a reason to put the trade on, and, and sort of my view as well. There's a reason that's happening, and, and I don't want to assume it's going to revert to the trend because it always works until it doesn't, and you'll find out. You'll find out afterwards. So if there's if there's a stock where someone's buying during the day and they're saying I'm happy to own this at any price, then the share price might keep on going above the VWAP and. And we won't, you know, we, we if we have a VWAP algo on, um, we might not receive the best price because the algo will have to buy more later because it's gonna it's gonna fill the volume, so it might have to be more aggressive towards the end of the day. So, uh, was that that was probably a bit of a confusing answer, but yeah, it will it will slow down um, if it's below uh, if it's below the limit, or if you, if you're buying and the price is above. Above the VWAP, it will it will slow down and and wait for that price to return.
2: Right. Out of all these algos you've described here, are there are there some which you kind of use every day, and some which are you know only special occasions.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely like VWAP is the majority of the time, and then I think within the others, it really just comes down to how you how you implement it. So you'll have. Um, your in- implementation sureful parameters where, um, say when you when you put an order on, if we're doing a basket, say we have a new investor come in and they're buying all our all the companies, and we're staggering that over a week, and we're not we're sort of not finessing that as closely. We might do an implementation sureful parameter, which will target it'll target the midpoint when you put that order on, and then and then you can say target the midpoint, but limit it say 100 basis points away from the limit from the from the midpoint so you've given some flexibility to the algo so that's what sort of our our trader at Endeavour does a lot of the time but I'd say yeah 90% of the time for the large top 200 orders it's it's a VWOP um, occasionally it's because there's an opportunity in the market and this happens a lot in results season. When a company announcement will come out and if it comes out intraday, so traders haven't had time to digest and funds haven't time to digest, so it hasn't got up or down straight away and and we might say this is a great opportunity now, we need to go at this price and then we'll go hard and we'll put a limit on and we're happy to buy as much volume as there is, but that's that's a rare scenario. Most of the time, we're just happy to participate over the day and, and receive the market price.
2: Okay. Uh, Just one last question around these algos and then we'll we'll move on. But the last one you described, uh, you called it a chameleon uh, and you said there were certain triggers that would cause it to do certain things. Can you give some examples of what that might be?
3: So the chameleon can adapt, uh, can join any of the algos based on different parameters. So you might say sniper until we have fifty percent of the volume. Oh actually let's reverse that. You might say VWAP until we have say fifty percent of our target of volume. Then once it hits fifty percent, and this could be any, you know, this could be 10% or 90% of our volume, or, you know, this might be until a certain amount of minutes from the close, or it might be until the volatility of the stock is above a certain number and there's a few, few metrics you can choose. And once it once it hits that parameter, then you can change to a different algo. So you might change from a VWAP until you've got 50% of the volume that you want to buy to a sniper, because then you know you've got you've got at least half your order on board. And then from there, you're happy to be more sort of opportunistic and take liquidity once it's there, as opposed to as opposed to just buying over the day at the market price. So yeah, there's a there's a few different parameters, and you can really um you can really make it what do whatever you want it to do, um, it's just as long as those parameters are, are defined.
2: Uh, all the orders you enter into the market are they all done algorithmically, or is there ever an occasion where you sit there and, and click the mouse?
3: No, we don't click the mouse. But actually, the majority of our orders are through the algo, and the majority are through our our broker, and then. We'll instruct our broker, and he will use an algo on his side, and that's either a limit or a VWAP. I'd say that's I'd say that's four fifths of the time. It's it's quite vanilla, and we are we are not ever um, sitting there ourselves um, trading the trading the stock because it's very time time consuming exercise. And we we like to spend our time sort of on the on the research analytical side. So, and that's what the brokers are there for. They've got have got traders on the desk. They, they don't take lunch. They they'll they'll, they'll <laughs> never leave. And they'll let you know if if the price is deviating far away from the instruction you gave them.
2: Okay, okay. Um, just on execution here, uh, I think this ties in. Do you always trade the stock? So when you're investing in a company are you only ever trading the stock or do you sometimes um, invest in more sophisticated derivatives, maybe corporate bonds or options, etc.?
3: Yeah, it's just equities for us and that's for the, uh, the long-only portfolios. Now, the hedge portfolio, that's 100% long majority of the time and then to offset the risk, to hedge off the risk, we'll do that through an ETF, so we could short a correlated ETF or buy an inversely correlated ETF, but again, yeah, all publicly traded uh, equity equities.
2: Okay, so let's speak a bit about how you look at risk as a portfolio manager. Uh, I presume it's very different from how uh, a retail trader or even an individual prop trader might look at risk. Uh, you know monitoring daily PL and that sort of thing. Give me a bit of an overview for how you assess risk and, and monitor risk on a, a portfolio level, etc. Yes
3: yeah, so on the on the PL, one thing I've found and you know this is only from two institutional funds, but also from speaking to another a lot of other portfolio managers in the industry is is that we never look at PNL. We look at our every morning or during the day we look at our portfolio of companies and we look at the weightings of the stocks in the portfolios and we're only ever looking at the share price and the valuation of those companies and and whether we think there's more upside and then we also have a a, a bench say of probably between 10 and 20 companies at any one one time that looking to make their way into the portfolio so we're always assessing how does the upside of the companies we own compared to the upside the upside of these potential new new entrants so just that always forward looking nature I, I find it really helps you to hold the big winners because it doesn't matter if a company's gone up 10 times if you think there's upside you hold it and that's because i think institutions with they're not going anywhere you can't go anywhere because you can't go to cash quickly, and that's the major edge you have as a trader. But, but we're we're investing in this portfolio, and when we're too old to, someone will be doing it um, after after I I can't, and just growing this pool of capital. and And I see it with like the retail, um, or mainly the CFD providers are great at it. That you know you see your your profit, your P and L, and if you the the stock's trading down. You've got a big red bar in front of you. You've got that negative, however many thousand dollars in your face, and that just triggers emotions. Whereas looking at a stock, looking at a portfolio just based on your on your weightings, it doesn't trigger emotions. You're sort of thinking, well, of, at least I am thinking longer longer term, longer term, and um, the only concern is really if the valuation stretched. So, I think, and also I'm talking from my experiences, would be considered like a mutual fund as opposed to a hedge fund where a hedge fund, like we have a hedge portfolio, but that's not a hedge fund. That's just a long equities portfolio that can hedge to offset risk. So we're mainly long equities majority of the time. And yeah, I think it, as a mutual as a mutual fund, because you're long only stock stocks majority of the time, you're not looking to go to you're not looking to cash up, and we're not as sophisticated in our risk assessment because we're benchmarked against the market, and our job um, for our long only portfolios is is to beat to beat the market. So, as long as we're not taking excessive risk within our within our weightings like we won't be we're attracted to these high growth uh high quality businesses but we won't have a portfolio of 100 te- percent tech we'll try and spread out a bit of risk and if we've got you know, significant weighting in in these great businesses but they have higher multiples we'll, we'll try and get in some businesses that have uh lower multiples and maybe a lower lower uh, growth outlook, but uh, less volatility. So we're always sort of managing the the risk, just by just on sector and uh, diversification. So we don't want all we don't want to be invested all in the same uh, same industry. And yes yeah, it's, it's very different to say the the hedged portfolio, um, the one I've been running for a year, where I'm tracking the I'm tracking the Cetino ratio. There, I'm tracking the the beta. I don't. I want low downside deviation. I'm. I'm quick to hedge off risk with that portfolio um, with ETFs. And yeah, you know, that portfolio has performed really well the last 12 months. The market's down 10%, and that portfolio is up up 30%. And and a lot of that was being able to hedge hedge quickly. Same March when the market pulled off, the the market was down 20%, and the hedging hedging added 22% to the performance because it was short short the market and that really protected investors but it's, it's just a it's mainly mainly our discretion and our feel and there's a lot of the time the volatility of the portfolio is also not a true reflection of the risk because we might have some smaller companies that are that are more volatile, but we actually know them, know them very well, and we're comfortable with that volatility. So that's why why some of the risk metrics sometimes aren't helpful as well.
2: You touched on emotions there at one point, um, kind of making the point that uh, I guess an individual trader can be uh, a lot more vulnerable to their own emotions and, um, you know, I don't think many will disagree with you there, but do you feel uh, pressure in in a different way, Um, like pressure to perform and to uh, impress, I don't know if impress is the right word, but uh, meet the expectations of your investors, like um, do you have different kinds of emotions at play?
3: Oh, definitely, yeah, and we um, and yeah, you know, having the portfolio, not looking at the P and L, like you still suffer from the same emotions. Like, so there's a great example is Afterpay, a company we invested in, met management at at eight dollars, we were a top twenty shareholder in Afterpay, and we we um, we were there until the company. Rose up to twenty eight dollars. We just sold in March as before the market started to tumble, or as it as it started to tumble. So we sold at twenty eight dollars. The share price pulled back to ten dollars. We felt smart temporarily. We had a call with management at. Ten ten oh, dollars. this was the day after actually it had come down to nine dollars. And this was about the low. We spoke to management and the day after the share price gapped up twenty percent. So it's up to eleven dollars. And we've we've gone, oh no, we can't pay up. We can't pay up 20 percent at the time. And this is when Joe you know, it's you think about it now and it's, it's would have been such an easy decision but at the time there were so many unknowns about how the retail industry was going to play out and we just couldn't get 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 conviction over the valuation and and the share price never looked back it just hit fifty dollars ten cents taking a significant stake in the business and and that that hurts you can't you know you can't hide from the emotion from that it's um yeah, you know, we we could have easily been there at eleven dollars, and you know we suffer. Every everyone's human, suffering from the same emotions, and and that's why you know the efficient market hypothesis. It's it's unequivocally not true. The 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 market is driven by humans, and well, less so these days, but it's still a lot of humans running these these quant funds and HFE HFT firms, and um, but behavior the human emotion and behavior does drive a lot of a lot of these share prices so we we suffer from that you get the FOMO you get the share the companies that you meet and you know we'll, we'll meet with say 500 companies a year and and you look at the market at the moment and everything you look at is going higher so you're, you're missing everything besides the 20 to 30 companies you own so that's uh, that's always there. You're always wondering if you could have done, you could have done better. And then you have client expectations. So, in the year before last, say our our high conviction portfolio did did really well. It was up forty percent for the year. It was a it was a great year. And then you know the year after that that came back, and our rolling year came back to low single digits. I think it was down to five percent for the rolling twelve months at one at one point in time. So you have clients. That you know, and you have clients that you know have that have done well over the years, but they may have built lifestyle lifestyles around the performance. And and because we know our clients personally, you know, it, it's it's great, you know, changing people's lives and seeing seeing the impacts if they can go on a holiday or buy a new car or whatever it is. But you feel the same on on the flip side where when it doesn't go well, you you definitely feel it.
2: Yeah, you mentioned after pay there. That's, that's funny.
3: Yeah, <laughs> think, that one hurts.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably a, a, a sensitive topic for many. I perhaps should have asked you this question a little bit earlier. I don't know if it quite ties into risk as much as it maybe does to execution, but can you share a little bit of insight to the importance of receiving insight to flow from the brokers who you work with?
3: yeah that's definitely important in small caps so say if we're looking outside of the top 200 in australia especially the there's not a lot of liquidity in the market i think apple does more turnover every day in the whole australian share market so out in these mid mid caps it is you're reliant on lines of stock. If you want to, if you want to come onto the register, you you often need to a line of stock, and that's where you lean on the the smaller stockbrokers because they might have done the IPO or the capital raise, and they've helped put the register together. So it is It's helpful in a stock. Say there's one at the moment that we're we're buying that say. That's a uh, property play in Australia, and we've been bid for ten million dollars worth of stock uh, this week and last week twice from the same buyer. So, they no, obviously can't find the stock. It only does half a million dollars a turnover a day. So, it's fair to say that you know, the stock's going higher, especially because we we know the fundamentals and 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 they've got some good short-term momentum. So that just that can give you give you some conviction and. And I mean it's not it's not foolproof because say if that say that investor they're obviously a large investor and they're not big enough to buy a market, but maybe they bought a little bit and then they can't they can't find a line for the rest of the stock. So they might sell what they own out, but you ne- you never know the the specific circumstances. But it is that does give you a lot of insight. And you also in a company, um, if you own a company, you the brokers are looking for buyers and sellers all the time because they want to get both sides of the transaction and double their commission. So you you hear a lot about the sell lines that are out there and the buy lines are out that are out there. And if there are in that property play, there's a buy line, and we sort of understand the reason why. But if there's a lot of selling coming through, it might be a catalyst to speak to management or um, chat to an analyst, and maybe there's maybe there's something else happening that um, and and that's that's a catalyst to investigate the stock further
2: sorry i i, I might not have uh, caught that properly are you trying to are you bid for this stock what off market and you're trying to find a seller to cross with
3: so yeah i probably didn't explain that as clearly as i could have so there's it's really the brokers are just trying to look for the other side of the line so if they have a buyer or a seller, they will send out their flow and they'll email it out saying, "We're buying these five stocks and we're selling these five stocks, and these this is the volume we're looking for. Do you have the other side? So then they can cross, they can cross the stock, and that might be because it's a liquid, or it might be because they want to get double the commission, or it might might be both. So you you get a lot of a lot of those insights from the market, and and you can find out. In companies you own, say you own a company and there's there's three people selling and they're looking to find a buyer and they're coming to us saying, hey, can you buy any more? And we might say, no, we're, we're comfortable with our waiting. We have enough. And people are, keep coming back saying, well, we've got a seller, we've got a seller, we've got a seller. Then it might be a catalyst to um, speak to management and just make sure there's nothing going on that um, is untoward.
2: Okay, okay. Hayden, let me ask you one last question and then we'll we'll wrap things up here. Um, I've kept you longer than I probably should have.
3: <laughs> oh, no problem.
2: I'm sure you want to uh, run off and enjoy your evening. For someone who's been listening to this podcast and they really like the idea of becoming a fund manager, obviously it's not for everyone, but there will be some people who it might be something they aspire to. It might be like their dream job, let's say. What advice would you give to someone who wants to get on the right path to becoming a fund manager? How should they go about
3: it? I think a pathway that a lot of fund managers have followed in the past, and probably the easiest, I think, is to join a broking firm. So this is on the on the sell side, and ideally on the research desk. But you know, maybe as a institutional broker, but the retail desk. Uh, sorry, the research desk is the best starting point because. You're learning the valuations and your job is to speak to the institutions. So you develop a relationship with institutions who are picking your brain about a stock that you've done some work on and, and a lot of the time, those institutions, if they're dependent on someone, they will they will post them to come to the buy side, work in the fund because they value their opinion and they might want that opinion to themselves. Or it's probably someone that they built a relationship with over the years that they they trust and they 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 would like to work with as well. So that's probably the most common, and especially at the smaller brokers. Um, you know, I'm not sure how those what the graduate programs are like these days, but you know, I might just be call, calling up, calling up a broker and asking if there's any open positions. And I find I've. I find like once you're in a firm, it's easier to move internally. Or at least in my experience, that's that's what I've seen. So even if it's on the, on the retail desk as a dealer's assistant, and you know, a job pops up on the research desk, then you know you can you can put your put your case forward.
2: Yeah, a lot of it's about just getting your foot in the door, I guess.
3: I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and that's that's what happened to me. I got a call from the head of research in Euros, and from from Euros, and that was actually when I was in uni. I put my resume in for I was looking for dealers assistant jobs, and for some reason, he held on to my resume for three years, and he he called me three years later, and and you know, there's a, there's a, luck, a lot a lot of luck involved in life, and um, you know that that was lucky.
2: Yeah, yeah, and here you are now.
3: <laughs> that's right and there's, there's also it's pretty easy to find out the you know the, the funds and the institutions in, in Australia at least and you know we, we don't ever get calls from people who you know young aspiring investors and they've run a portfolio and they've outperformed and they can pitch a stock to you and you never know it might, might be worth trying
2: yeah yeah alright Hayden let's call it a wrap if someone wants to follow you online I guess Twitter is probably a good place to do that Would you like to share your Twitter handle and any other place online where someone can go if they want to find out more?
3: Yeah, sure. I've I've been incognito online for years, but I've I've just started actually posting on Twitter. So my handle is at Hayden Beamish. So that's H-A-Y-D-E-N-B-E-A-M-I-S-H. And I'm putting a bit of content up there from sort of things I'm seeing during the day from from brokers and um, some macro pieces as well. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, but yeah, probably, probably Twitter's the main one.
2: Excellent. Well, Hayden, I want to give you a massive thanks uh, for, for taking this time and speaking about a bunch of things, which I guess we haven't really covered in previous episodes. So it's always nice to cover new ground. Yeah, really appreciate it, man. This has been a lot of fun.
3: Yeah, no problem, Aaron. Great, great to chat. It was, a, it was a pleasure and I hope it was helpful for some people.
0: You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.